Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yuria Zorja. I'm with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University, and I'm joined today by... Giselle Donnelly. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and... Dalibur Rohash, also with AI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Today, um, we are honored and thrilled to have um, U.S. Senator Rob Portman with Ohio, co-chair, among many other things, of the Senate um, Ukraine Caucus and member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And also, uh, if you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and as always, reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Senator Portman, thank you again for joining us today. You've been to Ukraine, if I'm not wrong, about eight times um, to the region during this 2022 war, already three times, and most recently in August with a bipartisan delegation. Um, can you tell us how you how your latest visit was and how you see the greater context of where Ukraine is heading in the weeks to come? Well, Yulia, first, thank you for having me on and for what you do with the podcast and bringing this issue uh, to people's attention. One of my concerns is that, frankly, other headlines have pushed Ukraine uh, off to the side to a certain extent. And we need, in my view, uh, to continue to focus on this issue because I think it has uh, very large implications for our country and our national security. Uh, I was there most recently at the end of August. I was there uh, as the latest counteroffensive in the Northeast region was beginning and uh, meeting with President Zelensky um, and the Defense Minister, Chief of Staff and, and others, and also met with members of the parliament. And they were quite you know, optimistic about uh, uh, the progress that, that uh, they thought they could make in the Kherson region uh, and in uh, Kharkiv. But uh, frankly, I think that no one expected that it would be quite as successful in the Northeast and in, in the Kharkiv region. And what we've seen in the last few days is further successes now uh, in the small region, more to the south. And all I can say is, uh, uh, directing this to my colleagues in the House and Senate, what we have done has made a difference. And specifically, to have the ability uh, to have longer range artillery has changed the, the balance of power on the battlefield. And so the combination of the Ukrainians having this incredible passion about protecting their freedom and their home and their and their families and, and therefore having morale on their side and and the ukrainian spirit which is uh, as we've all seen is so resilient on the one hand on the other hand ha finally having the weapons that they need including these uh, so-called HIMARS, the american version of something that the brits and the germans have also provided now which is the ability to uh, be able to compete with the uh, the, the Russian long-range artillery. The Russians were previously sitting back with impunity, really, and firing on both military and civilian targets. Uh, now they have a harder time doing that uh, because the Ukrainian artillery, uh, for the most part, can can reach them. And second, it can reach the supply lines. So the uh, the weapons depots and the logistics centers and even the command and control centers, they've been quite successful at taking out, which I think is the main reason you see that softening uh, along the northeastern line, but also now going into the into the Donbass uh, in the northeast and again making progress in Kherson, which is really exciting because this is obviously very important in terms of the Black Sea ports and and being able to make progress there, I think will will add a lot to the morale of the Ukrainian uh, citizens and the Ukrainian troops and help to continue to shift the momentum toward the Ukrainians. 
You know, Senator, the especially the counteroffensive, you know, came at a crucial time sort of uh, from a political standpoint, too. You know, in the spring after the initial attacks were blunted, people began to believe people in the West uh, and in the United States began to believe, hey, maybe Ukraine can win. And the counteroffensive has really raised the prospect that it's very likely that the Ukrainians will win. That seems to have unnerved us a little bit, also in combination with uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, once again waving the, the nuclear pitchfork in our faces. How would you assess the appetite for, you know, not simply continuing the um, flow of HIMARS and the other requirements that the Ukrainians have, but using this opportunity to really try to help the Ukrainians bring the war to a positive conclusion. Um, you know, um, it's a little early to say that the end is in sight, but surely the beginning of the end is in sight. Well, Giselle, I, I appreciate uh, your perspective on that because I think you're right. I think it was politically important also in terms of timing on the Hill. We are uh, in the process, as you know, of trying to complete the appropriations, the short-term appropriations. and. Uh, we were able to add uh, additional funding for Ukraine. And that would have been more difficult, I think, if we hadn't seen the progress because the $40 billion, some of which uh, went to Ukraine, some of us went to our own military needs in the previous supplemental, was a significant contribution. And people were, frankly, on my side of the aisle beginning to get some uh, funding fatigue. So I think the additional, I think it's roughly $17 billion, again, a lot of that going to Ukraine, not all of it, some of it going to help us with our own stockpiles uh, and our own uh, re, you know, restocking of, of, of our weapons uh, is was less controversial than it would have been thanks to the fact that we were able to show that we're making a difference, you know, that what the United States Congress is doing and therefore leading the world. And as you know, there are about 50 countries providing some sort of military assistance to Ukraine now, uh, but we are in the lead that that's, that's beginning to turn the tide. I'm not, I'm a little more cautious than you are, and, and you're an expert, uh, and, and I'm just a senator who tries to follow this. Uh, closely, but um, I, you know, I do still think that the Russian advantage in terms of a number of armored vehicles and tanks, in particular, and missiles, and and uh, the 300,000 uh, person call up the 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 draft that uh, President Putin has just announced, which is very unpopular in Russia, as you know. I um, mean, all these make us realize that this is the largest army in Russia. Uh, by the way, Ukraine's number two. Um, and it's going to continue to be a slog. Uh, but I agree with you that it's changed the dynamic and that ultimately the, the fact that the Ukrainians are fighting for their own freedom and their own country and, and, and their own families makes a huge difference. It's incalculable. But the weapons and equipment and so on are necessary, but not sufficient. You also have to have uh, this ability to, to take the fight to the other side. And, and that's where I think the Ukrainians have a huge advantage. I don't see these 300,000 new conscripts, many of whom will be ill-prepared for battle. They, uh, many will have had no previous experience. And if they uh, you know, take them to a proper training process, they won't be on the front for a long time. If they don't, then they'll be, I think, very uh, ill-equipped to be able to, to handle these um, Ukrainian soldiers who are now quite seasoned. And uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic, uh, but still see that this mm -hmm. is a huge, a huge task in front of us. In terms of the nuclear aspect, I'd like to hear more from you all on that. I'm, I have my own views on that. I think it's, again, that saber rattling has happened before. We've seen it before. It is, it is 
obviously not in Russia's interest to do it, uh, including the fact that fallout would certainly occur in, in Russia, but it would also bring NATO in in a way that I think would be uh, very detrimental. And I think we have to continue to say that there will be severe consequences. I think that was the word that um, the administration used recently, uh, should that happen. And we need to hear that from NATO as well. That's a, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I think given that the Ukrainians themselves are taking the nuclear threat seriously, I think we should be taking it seriously as well. But I wonder what you would tell to those who argue that because of Russia's nuclear brinkmanship, uh, we have to be extremely careful and, and carefully calibrate the sort of assistance and military aid we give to the Ukrainians as if we were trying to make sure that they are winning, but that they are not winning too quickly or too overwhelmingly. Yeah, I have a, a little, I, I understand that point of view, and I've certainly heard it expressed by some colleagues. Um, however, I, I don't think that's what uh, motivates uh, Vladimir Putin. I think he's more motivated by, you know, by our ability to uh, be successful and particularly success on the battlefield and tightening of the sanctions. I think what we saw uh, yesterday and this morning in terms of uh, oil prices was a response in effect to um, you know, the, the pressure that he's feeling. So he's trying to get even more receipts in. And it's the biggest problem right now. The, the Russian war effort, while it's flagging and, and lack of morale and protests back home and literally uh, thousands of people, uh, you know, in traffic jams at every border uh, crossing trying to get out of Russia. Uh, airline tickets apparently are all sold out and are extremely expensive. So it's not going well for them. On, on the other hand, uh, you've got this juggernaut of the, the Russian military, which is still substantial, and receipts coming in from oil and gas. And we have to be frank that this year that we're in right now, receipts are up 30% in terms of oil and gas. And that's what's funding this war machine. And what we just saw in terms of this ability of OPEC plus to join with Russia and say they're going to pull back production will raise prices even more and will help Russia even more. So we have to we have to acknowledge that. And in my view, we have to be much tougher on the sanctions with regard to the countries that are willing to join us. And that won't include China uh, at this point, but it will include the EU and uh, not provide waivers, not depend on price caps, which I take sort of a, uh, a skeptical view of that. I'm not I'm not uh, I hope it works, but I don't think the price caps are the answer because I think that the market is so much more powerful, particularly with production being cut back and the countries you know, like India and others will be willing to pay what they have to pay um, in order to get these resources. So, but I'd love to know your view on that uh, also. On that note of energy, um, we have been talking on this podcast in, in generally about a hard fall and winter, a cold and hard one. And um, we already see the effects of rising prices across Europe. We had protests in the Czech Republic because of high prices. We see now protests in Moldova that are actually threatening to topple the government because of that. And obviously, these conversations are not just in, in Europe getting hotter in, an, uh, in the end, but also here in the United States. And you sort of alluded to that. And I'd be curious to hear um, from you, Senator, in terms of how do you think this um, affects the political debate um, in the transatlantic space? You've been following that very closely for, um, for a long time. Um, and I think there's 
comparable lines between the United States and Europe. Um, so what are you most worried about in the political context of energy prices? Well, Yulia, first to say uh, that I have been uh, extremely pleased and impressed by the transatlantic uh, cooperation and unity so far. And um, frankly, I don't think that Vladimir Putin expected that. I think he thought this would split NATO. I think he thought it would split, uh, frankly, the the countries like the United States and Japan, Australia, South Korea, and certainly our friends in, in the EU, and it has not. I mean, the, the, the degree of cohesion is really impressive. And I mentioned earlier, 50 countries have provided some military assistance in one way or another, even countries that previously have been neutral. Um, of course, Sweden and Finland choosing to join NATO is a huge uh, indication of, of, of what I'm suggesting. So in that backdrop, um, I will say that the energy crisis you know, tests that unity. And I think the United States has an enormous opportunity right now to, to step up and help more and to get some of our friends in the Middle East to help more, some of our allies, in terms of liquefied natural gas, because uh, gas is the biggest single issue. And I will say that although there's a 30% increase in receipts going to, to Russia, Europeans have cut back substantially. And of course, with uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2 now down, uh, there's not much of a choice. But we need to do more in terms of providing them what they need, uh, at least in terms of natural gas. And we can do that. We have enormous resources here in this country. We're blessed with them. We need more infrastructure to move, both in terms of pipelines and in terms of export facilities. And they need to move quickly on their import facilities. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about permitting recently. Uh, that needs to be part of this discussion. So I think that's our job, is to let the European public know that, that we are trying to help and we are with them, uh, but that the uh, the atrocities being committed in Ukraine cannot be supported. And, and that's where these gas receipts are going. And without those gas receipts, the Putin regime uh, really has no effective source of, uh, of, of funds. Uh, one exception, apparently, uh, based on the AP story that I read uh, yesterday is that they are smuggling grain out of Ukraine and uh, selling it at a very high price because they are, by the same token, taking out grain bins and creating a you know, a lower supply, therefore higher price. So they're, they're trying other ways to raise funds, but the big one is it's going to be energy. Strikes me that there are two components to the problem. One is Russia's use of natural gas as a source of leverage over Europe and trying to essentially derail European unity on on, on, on sanctions and on aid to Ukraine. The other problem, of course, is that a product like oil is to some extent fungible and Russia has been able to find new markets and and capitalize on the on the high oil prices worldwide. So do, do you think there is a role for Congress uh, in the in the coming months in in, in in tackling either of those two either of those two problems and what what, what prospects do you think there are? for uh for you know some satisfactory progress on, on on both of these issues so helping our european friends you know stay warm throughout the winter and 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 have some supply of natural gas and and also squeezing the russian oil and gas sector much much harder whatever i think i think one thing that the administration and congress seem to agree on now is to increase production and i noticed this morning the white house was uh, uh probably making their most declarative uh, statements yet on the fact that we need to, both on natural gas and oil, increase production in this country in order to meet the needs, both of American drivers who are going to the gas pump this morning and seeing the price going up again, and uh, more supply will help to get those prices down, but also in the context of the, the OPEC plus announcement. Uh, so, and again, we have the capacity to do that. It does take a little while, 
but not as long as some may think, because remember, we're not even back to the pre-pandemic level of production yet. Uh, we're getting close, but there's more that we can do here. And I do think we need to make a transition to a greener economy. But I also think that in the meantime, we, we have to regard this as a national security threat and, uh, and deal with it accordingly. Uh, I also think that natural gas in particular and the use of more natural gas in our economy will decrease uh, our CO2 emissions and has. I mean, that's all that's mattered really. When you look at the, at the facts, the U.S. has reduced CO2 emissions because of the natural gas taking over mostly coal-fired plants in places like my home state of Ohio. And there's a great opportunity to do more of that. So I do hope that, you know, even in the short term, both through better permitting uh, and also just through the certainty that these oil and gas companies right. can now get, I hope, from the administration and from Congress, that if they make big investments that, you know, they, they won't be stifled from producing, which was the message they got early in the Biden administration, obviously, by cutting off Keystone and by saying you can't uh, do new uh, permitting on on federal lands and waters, uh, that was that was a, a a reason for companies to pull back. Now, hopefully, uh, the opposite message can be sent, and the price signals are out there, obviously, um, as, as as well. So that's what I hope happens. You know, there is kind of a I've noticed lately a, a dichotomy in views on these issues, uh, oddly between the. the Europeans and and I, I hope you are correct that the Biden administration is uh, sort of willing to, you know, confront the more extreme environmentalists and its own coalition. But the Europeans are telling themselves, if we can just get through this winter, this winter is the last winter we, you know, we'll have to rely on Russian gas supplies, for example, and then we can then switch to alternative sources. Do you think that the administration sees that as clearly as people in Europe seem to see it? And then after that, I want to ask you a question. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, uh, weariness on funding. We have to ask you a question about what the heck's going on in the Republican Party that we all grew up in, and um, especially in, in the context of uh, Ukraine aid, what the prospects are. You know, you're quite right that this, even if the war is going well, it's got a long way to go, so there will be need for more support. But let, let me ask you first about the how you sense the Biden administration's change of attitude on energy exports. Well, again, I'm I'm basing this on some of what they're saying uh, more recently, including this morning, I saw they had uh, a spokesperson talking about the need for us to increase production and they need to provide the certainty yeah. for investment. And Giselle, as you know, from your time on the Hill, uh, Congress needs to play a role in that too, so that people don't think the rug is going to be pulled out from under them. Uh, as it was, frankly, of, of billions of dollars of investments in Keystone and people even not involved with that looked at it and said, yeah. you know, we could be next. And so I think there was, it wasn't just the fact that the administration campaigned on it and then day one said that they were going to uh, pull back on production. It was that they saw in, yeah. in real time what was happening to, uh, to, to investment. So you've got to be realistic. I mean, even if this war hadn't happened, it wasn't realistic for all of us to go to electric cars tomorrow. You know, we, we mean to make the transition, but it just is not uh, possible. And the people who bear the brunt of it, of course, are working families uh, who are going to see higher prices on their utility bills already are uh, and at, at the gas pump. And so, and energy, of course, is embedded in everything, including transportation, food, uh, clothing, 
everything. So I think they've got to pull back here and realize that we need to use the resources that we're blessed to have, uh, use them in a way that's appropriate and particularly focusing on, again, this lower emissions you're going to get from natural gas and uh, make this transition more, more slowly and, and more realistically. You look at what Germany has done in the past uh, for getting away from nuclear power. I think they're realizing that now, even forgetting the uh, the fact that they were way too dependent on, on Russia for about half of their, their gas. Uh, in terms of the Republican Party, look, we've got lots of voices in our party now um, who are, you know, more on the uh, isolationist side. I would I would say and that's a strong word, but um, if the shoe fits, uh, you know. Yeah, but uh, I think it's also true that this has been a wake up call for a lot of Republicans to see, you know, what can happen even in the 21st century with the first you know, European war since almost 80 years since World War II um, and how it affects everything, including food prices and gas prices. And it does affect us in terms of our national security in the sense that if Putin is allowed to do this, uh, there's no question that, that China will view that as an opportunity for them to be, you know, engaging more in their malign activities throughout the Asian Pacific area and beyond, uh, and specifically with regard to Taiwan, but also Iran and its ambitions uh, in, in the Mideast, and particularly with regard to Israel. And generally speaking, you know, countries yeah. around the world, our adversaries and our allies thinking, well, this is the way it's going to be. The new world order is that a, a country can step into another country, a sovereign nation, in this case, a democracy, now I have ours. And uh, without consequence, we saw it with regard to Crimea. We saw it with regard to the Donbass back in 2014. Uh, we should have reacted more strongly. We did not, and not just the United States. I'm talking about the free world, in essence, and not just NATO. Now we're doing it, and we're doing it because of the uh, extreme overreach in terms of the atrocities, the war crimes, uh, the attacks on civilians. And so my hope is that he, within our party also, there's a realization again, this is what, you know, Ronald Reagan was talking about and what John Kennedy was talking about for Democrats. And this is, as John Kennedy wrote and, and was meant to give in a speech the day he was assassinated by destiny rather than choice. You know, America is the watchguard in the walls of world freedom. And in this generation, this is our challenge right here in Ukraine. Well, I will add just as a, a footnote that if in my time, if we'd passed a defense bill by the kinds of margins that the Ukraine aid bill got, we would have uh, you know, all headed to the bar and celebrated in the tip yeah. of the late hours. You know, some yeah. people kind of look through the wrong end of the telescope. And uh, as always, those who shot the loudest get the most attention. Good, good point. Yeah, that goes to our point earlier about uh, with Yulia, how the I mean, it, it is extraordinary the way we have come together and we forget that. So there will be voices uh, that will be expressing concern over gas prices here this week, I'm sure, within the EU. As you mentioned, there's some uh, demonstrations going on in some of the European uh, broader, broader, you know, EU countries. But it, it, the amount of, uh, of unity and steadfastness and, frankly, you know, the assistance, both the military assistance and the humanitarian, humanitarian assistance has been just overwhelming. Uh, I have been to the region a lot recently, and two of my trips I was able to you know, go to the border and meet uh, refugees coming across. Um, yesterday, by the way, I, uh, I met with a woman who was uh, here in the United States. Uh, her daughter managed uh, through a miracle really to get her out of uh, Mariupol. Her father was killed. 
and I met this 85-year-old woman yesterday. By the way, I use the word refugees. That's not the right word. These are displaced people who want to go back to Ukraine. And that's a very important distinction, I think, including this 85-year-old woman. But, oh my gosh, uh, these countries like Poland who have just opened up their homes and you know, their generosity is just extraordinary. Uh, you know, seven or eight million Ukrainians who want to go home, but are being hosted essentially uh, by, by Europe. Um, some being hosted by us, a smaller number. But that is something we overlook sometimes is the, the, the response, not just on the military side, but the humanitarian side has been extraordinarily generous. I, I was going to make a sort of somewhat flippant political point, which is, which is that you won your most recent election, I believe, by 17 points in Ohio. And I imagine that to some extent due to the Ukrainian-American community uh, in Ohio as well. And and I mean, I, I, I just want to hope that Ukrainian-Americans of Ohio will be, you know, well represented and will have a voice at the table in Washington in the future as well. Well, there great friends um, uh, of mine in the Ukrainian community have been for years. My predecessor was George Boinovich, who uh, told me early on when I was in Congress uh, that I needed to get up to uh, Northeast Ohio and other areas of Ohio where we have a large uh, population, not just of Ukrainian Americans, but uh, all the Eastern and Central European countries, the, the uh, communities of, uh, that were affected mostly uh, by the, the Soviet occupation and to this day, Dalibor, when I go there, I just was there not long ago for the Ukrainian National Day Parade where I was the, the Grand Marshal, but it's Poles and Latvians and Lithuanians, um, Serbians. I mean, it's a, it's a mix uh, of nationalities, but all passionate about this issue because they get it. They, they understand what's at stake here. This is about global freedom. It's not just about Ukraine. Ukraine, in a sense, is fighting the fight for all of us. And there's a strong, strong support I hate to correct you, um, and I shouldn't, but I, I just can't help myself. I won by 21 points, not 17. <laughs> but 17 to 21 was probably Ukrainian friends. So. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that, that only strengthens my point. And, and, and I, I think, you know, these, these voters, you know, they, they, their, their natural home would be in normal times in the Republican Party. And, I mean, I'm, you know, I'll be looking with great great interest for the for the results coming in this November. Well, they're, they're, they're great people and the political orientation doesn't matter to me. You know, you do the right thing. Uh, but I will say that they tend to be independent voters and they tend to swing back and forth depending on what they think is best for themselves, their families. And this is obviously the issue of the day now. Uh, inflation and the economy is the number one issue nationally, uh, crime, the border. Uh, but with regard to this community, again, they see the importance of what's going on here, and they are looking for America to continue to play the leading role. And they understand that we can't do it all, and we shouldn't, but that if we aren't out there leading, um, other countries don't have the confidence to be able to engage uh, literally in the fight and uh, and figuratively in the general assistance and humanitarian assistance, economic systems, assistance to, uh, to Ukraine. Ukraine is in trouble right now economically, and that needs to be discussed. And to Giselle's point about funding fatigue, part of what we have to do in the short term is to figure out how to get economy, the economy of Ukraine back on track. Russia's economy is down 10 to 15 percent. The Ukrainian economy is down 40 to 50 percent. Uh, no wonder. I mean, they're being bombed and people have left. 
12 million people plus are displaced, about half within the country. This is why the anti-missile, anti-aircraft systems are so important, not just to have the HIMARS and the tanks and you know the radar at the at the line of contact and at the uh, the the hot war in the in the east and in the in the northeast, but with regard to the rest of Ukraine, to give people the assurance that they will be safe and they can come back and that an errant uh, you know Russian missile isn't going to flatten another supermarket or a shopping center or a church or a school uh, or their home or business. And so that's one reason I think we need to really focus on providing this essentially air support of one kind or another, even including, in my view, uh, U.S. air support uh, that we can provide to them, not U.S. pilots, of course, but we need to look at the possibility of sending them the kind of weaponry they need to protect the rest of Ukraine so that Ukraine can get back on its feet, people can go home. I'm going to interrupt Julio, who's going to uh, uh, take us home here, but do you think there's any prospect of sort of a comprehensive I, first of all this would probably have to come out of the administration but I'd be interested in the conversation that you may have with your colleagues about what they think would be required to support Ukraine as as a de facto member of NATO if not yet a, a formal member of NATO but all the things that, that you you know, for example, that we're doing for the polls, all the sales that we're making to the polls and so on and so forth to make sure that Ukraine has a robust deterrent force, um, you, you know. So uh, it, I just wondered if there's even any conversation about that, uh, you know, amongst members. There is. And I, I think it's very important. You know a lot about the Lend-Lease program because you worked on it on the Hill Armed Services Committee. But that that is in some of the aid packages, that kind of uh, uh, an idea that over time that the United States should view Ukraine as a security partner and ensure that this doesn't happen again if we can resolve this, this, uh, you know, this horrible uh, invasion, because I think Russia will keep, will keep probing. Uh, I also think with regard to NATO that U Ukraine, you know, has now applied uh, and my view all along had been, and I've been saying this for several years, is that it would be good to bring Ukraine in because that's all that will protect Ukraine ultimately. That Russia will continue to probe and try everything they, they can. And they, they, you know, they are doing what they said they were going to do. And by the way, if you're in the Baltics, they've also said that the Baltics belong to them. You know, they have said that they want to recreate this Russian empire or federation or or the USSR, depending on the day. And um, so we have to take that seriously. And the best way, you know, to defend against that is to have an Article 5 type uh, mutual aid agreement with these countries, which we do have with the Baltics and with Poland and with other countries. Uh, but we don't have it for Georgia. We don't have it for Moldova. We don't have it for Ukraine. I think that's why they are continuing to, you know, be both physically attacked in the case of Ukraine kinetically, but also just constant cyber attacks and, and other probes to try to take what are, you know, fledgling democracies and, and try to uh, destabilize them. So I, I hope that, you know, we do keep moving down that track and allow them into the map process, the first step, and let the rest of the world know, particularly Russia, that, that this, is, this is the end game here, that we are going to be making a commitment to these countries. 
Senator, we uh, hate to let you go in many ways. Um, we want to thank you, but very quickly before I take us home, as Giselle said, uh, we didn't have time to ask you what's next for you um, uh, in the coming year, but we do want to know, we went um, last this summer um, to Kiev as well, and basically we're wondering if next summer you'll join us. <laughs> well, I will continue to help in any way I can. And I have a personal interest, uh, given my relationships here uh, with family members who have family, uh, uh, family members in Ukraine, um, of Ukrainian uh, Ohioans, uh, but also, you know, having spent some time in Ukraine, and as you mentioned, I've, I've been there about eight times since 2014, I do think that, you know, this is the place where this battle is being waged in this generation. And I think it's extremely important for all of us to, to stay involved and engage. In 2014, they made a very conscious decision. You know, they decided that they'd had enough with a Russian-backed corrupt government and they wanted to turn to us and embrace us. And we need to now be there to stand for them. When I say us, I mean Europe, I mean the United States, I mean the whole free world. It's not, uh, it's not just the United States, but Again, we have the ability to lead because of uh, the fact that we have a qualitative edge still on the military side, and and so that's our that's our role. So I'll continue to stay involved in, in ways that I think are most helpful. Again, I'm very excited about the idea of Ukraine getting back on its feet economically, so it can be self-sufficient again, and that it has so much potential to do that. Great agriculture, great uh, in industry, as you know, manufacturing, but also on the tech side. Uh, a great opportunity that President Zelensky has talked to me and many people about that, uh, you know, this could be a country that really helps to lead in terms of innovation, uh, you know, new technologies and, uh, and a great tech workforce. So my hope is that that's the future we see here in the next few years in Ukraine. Senator Rob Portman, thank you so much for joining us. From me, Yulia Shroja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and Ali Borohaj. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. The Eastern Front's newsletter is now live. You can sign up for the newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive bi-weekly updates of newly released episodes, exclusive Q&A with us, your hosts, and to stay up to date with the most recent op-eds and article from us on security challenges facing the Eastern Front. And you can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter, as always. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.